Hey everyone, welcome back to the History of Westeros podcast, the podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series and HBO's Game of Thrones. Of course, we are heavily focused on HBO's Game of Thrones. This episode, as with all of our episodes entitled Show Only, will be very little to no book discussion. Occasionally we'll make a very, very obscure reference or just to point out that something isn't in the books just to add a little color to the discussion, but we are 99% focused on the show only. And that's how it's going to be all season long. If you're interested in our book-to-show reviews, we have those recorded separately with myself and Ashea and recurring guest Yoke Boy from Radio Westeros. We'll also have some other guests this season. Stay tuned to hear who they will be. A lot of exciting surprises and a lot of fun planned for the season. So, let's get uh, on our way. I'm your host, Aziz. With me, as always, is Sean of House Beard. Hello, everybody. And I have an important announcement to make. Sean... Sean's beard has agreed to accept my beard as a squire beard, so he's learning from the best, and we can only hope that he becomes half as strong and powerful as Sean's here. So that's great news for me. Hopefully you all are excited for me as well. Closer to Podrick than Robin. (laughs) So I want to reiterate that we haven't watched ahead. We have only watched the first two episodes. We watched them when they aired. Well, we watched the first one early because we watched a screening of it early in Atlanta, but that wasn't a leaked episode. (laughs) We have not downloaded anything. We have not watched ahead, and that's how it's going to stay. We want to be on target with you guys. We want to be experiencing this with you, and we want to review it with you. We don't want to get ahead, or else that will ruin our ability to make guesses and predictions, so we're not going to go there. Now... Um, we've had a great response so far to the first episode, so we're going to keep going with our format, but I want to throw out there that a lot of you guys have given us some really good suggestions. The show is harder in some ways to research than the books. I know that's a name we've made for ourselves by being uh, really on top of research and keeping track of details. It's a little harder to do with the show because you can't look things up. You can't do like an ebook search for a certain phrase. So that presents a few challenges that are interesting. And one of the ways that really helps is by treating this as a community endeavor, as we like to do in general. And so what that means is if you have a suggestion or if you have something you think that we might not catch or something that you want us to talk about specifically, tweet it at us at Westeros History. Send it to us on Gmail, westeroshistory at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook, Westeros History on Facebook. Lots of different ways to talk to us, but we really are open to your suggestions because this is a community thing and we all want to participate and we all want to have our questions answered because there's a lot of good questions out there. So let's get, let's get, let's move a little farther on here. Um, the feedback you guys have been given, like I said, has been really good. We're going to continue to improve the show and look for more ways to make this a better experience for everybody. But enough talk about the show and surrounding material. Let's get into the actual episode itself. I My first thoughts were that this was probably the most beautiful episode from a scenery perspective. The shots of Marine and Bravos were just really beautiful. These foreign locations, foreign as, as, as ter- in terms of not Westeros, are really... They've done a really good job. It's a stunning thing uh, to be able to see some of these things. And... It really makes me think as well about the books and how people sometimes complain about how the show is not sticking to the books, but sometimes they don't throw in the balance. Like you say, well, this is something that the books do better, this is something that the books do better. A lot of times people don't also point out things that the show does better. There's nothing in the books that can approach the beautiful scenery that we get treated to on the TV show. So there's, you know, 
as we go on, it just becomes more clear that the show and the books are two separate entities. And I understand people that are purists that want to see that want to stay things see things stay to the books, but I think it's only fair to point out the things that the show does better. Partly just because of the medium it's in. What, what do you think about that, Sean? What are your thoughts on that? I know you've you've read just the first book, so you have some ability to compare these things. Uh, yeah, I definitely think about that dynamic a lot in general, not just Game of Thrones. Uh, and um, having not read all the books, it's harder for me to complain about what they're not doing. You know, um, even and, if you would complain, right? Right, <laughs> right. Um, I will point out though uh, that, uh, oh, like you said, I do agree. This episode, I think, was particularly. Uh, visually appealing, uh, lots of like awesome imagery, uh, which the show does a lot of. I think uh, not that the book doesn't, but it's the show can do it in an instant, just in a flash. You just this huge scene of a city or a statue or a building or a character, whereas in a book you have to read two or three pages and start to formulate an idea in your mind. Which maybe it's more fun for some people to imagine it in their mind, but for me it's more fun to imagine in my mind what a character's thinking, what a character's going through, uh, or, or read two or three pages worth of that. I'd rather just see the visual image, you know, and... Uh, Maybe someday they'll be able to combine the mediums. You'll have a book that has, you know, like an e-book where you can click a button and see the image of Bravos, for example, and then rather than reading a description of it, you see it, or you, you know, get both. graphic novels, that's, that's true. the thing, you know. That's uh, true. Speaking of, there are graphic novels for the Hedge Knight series, the prequels for Duncan, you know, the prequels, the Duncan Egg series, and you can order those through our website at www.historyofwesteros.com on the right sidebar there. So there are some graphic novels out there, and those are some of those are really fun because you get to see like the heraldry, and in, in these in these in these stories from the past, you actually get to see things like Targaryens in their armor and their like dragon armor and their black and red. It looks really cool. So, but that's a, that's quite an aside, so we won't go there. <laughs> uh, I will point out, by the way, another thing the show gets to do that a book doesn't get to do is use music. Very uh, true. A lot of times that can really create a tone or a, a, a feeling of suspense or victory or whatever else, you know, so. I, that's something that really gets me. In fact, a lot of times I'm very moved by the music choices they use. I'm, I'm a person, I, I'm a, I was a music student in college, I have a music degree, and I grew up around music. My mother is a professor of music, so I'm very tuned into that sort of thing, and, and I've definitely caught myself a few times getting a little misty or uh, just having a, just being overwhelmed by the music um, alongside whatever emotions the characters are feeling. It really adds to it for me. Uh, it's really something that gets me. And that even happened in this episode a little bit. No, I'll, I'll point that out when we get to it. By the way, that would be a neat thing for a book to do, or you know, which with you know electronic devices more reasonable now. When you like turn the page or whatever, like a start playing some music, music keys in or wow. whatever, that would be a neat. Thing <laughs> How evil would it be? You're turning a book, all of a sudden the reins of Casimir starts playing. You're like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, what's happening here? <laughs> well, someone's gonna steal that idea. I need to patent that real quick. Yeah, no, we have first proof right here. We thought of it first. This is this episode. <laughs> so let's start with Bravos, of course. Like I said, um, we have Arya seeing these really wonderful scenes. You can see the Titan again. The Titan is just so cool looking. I really love seeing it. I can't get enough of it. And I like how even in some of the scenes, you can see it far back in the distance. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, was that too. Great yeah. touch, great touch. Um, so, but as far as what's actually happening, she goes to the door, knocks on it, and, the, you know, the man drops her off first with the rowboat, and he says, any man of Bravos would have done the same. So that gets you the sense of... The, the Bravosi have a lot of respect for this this temple of black and white. What, what were your first impressions on on the attitude towards people? Because we also have the, the the people running away from 
Jake and whatever, just because we don't have a name for him yet. We'll just call yeah. him Jake, and even though he says that's not his name, yeah. you know, he's just no one. But that's not a very descriptive. So we'll just keep calling him Jake and for now. And they call run away from man. him. Even though he's in disguise, I guess. So Maybe it shows the robes that... robes are part of their yeah, decor. I don't know. Some sort of thing. Some, something tipped them off. I don't know if it was his face or... But they knew who he was and they ran away. And these were just urchins. So it seems like everyone... I guess yeah. that's the message that everyone seems to know who they are. Which is ironic, too, because they seem like a sort of a secret cult and shrouded in disguises. And I, uh, I'm not sure what to think about it. I feel like there's clearly a, a mystical element to this which a lot of times the show is presented in a i don't know quite what phrase i want to use somewhere between realistic or down to earth i mean a lot of times the, the plots are kind of epic and we're following you know characters of nobility but i still feel like they do a good job of not being overly glamorized i i, I don't want to be careful because I, I know it's the type of thing i would even complain about sometimes how people are too clean shaven but i feel like this episode, Jamie Lannister wasn't exactly clean shaven. I, I don't know if they do the best job with it, but I, my point is that every now and then I have to remind myself, oh, wait, there's real magic. This isn't like <laughs> Earth or whatever, you know. Yeah. I, I, I had an inclination to think when, uh, when Arya was showing up to that building. I, I, this is the type of thing that kind of runs through my mind a lot. That huge edifice, that huge building. It seemed kind of separated. They had to take a boat to get there. It's kind of the staircase up. And in my mind, I'm like, Who's in there? How many people? Is it like three dudes in a library going over some book? Is it like hustling and bustling with hundreds of people? Like, what do they eat? Where does the food come from? Is there a garden inside? Is there shipments of fish every day? Is there a cook? I don't see any chimneys. <laughs> Maybe I overthink things. Uh, but I'm just so curious what's going on in this huge building that seems kind of separated out. How does it maintain itself? And I started to resolve that, well, it's probably just some kind of magic you know what i mean it's uh yeah it's easy to just to say well it must be it could be magic you can't it doesn't always just have to not make sense because ah, get some magic involved you know you get to yeah. it's like a supernatural excuse <laughs> which i feel like they don't use all the time like that's like brought up as an issue you know that the people of king's landing are revolting or suffering or that you know that what a uh, dragonstone they were starving out and the onion knight saved them you know it's not like these are ignored by the world um but I feel the House of Black and White maybe gets a pass. You know, what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> they've clearly showed that there's some magic. It's not. They're not, they're not it's, it's one thing when it, magic is like relied on to to push the plot. Another thing when it just amplifies it or enhances it or yeah. it's just a part of it. It's just a part of the picture rather than everything is about this magic. Now that said, the magical elements have have increased from season to season, but still they're not overwhelming. Still don't have, oh, yeah. well, I was about to say, you still don't have people throwing fireballs, but we did have that. <laughs> <laughs> Although that was like way in the north. It, it wasn't like just running around in a city, and, and we still don't even know the nature of that magic. Maybe if that character left the north, they couldn't do that anymore. Right, or if it took a lot out of them, maybe it was like really... Maybe they can't just do it all day. It was yeah, like this, she's really tired you know, after doing that. Yeah. It's just to, you know, plug in her, her charger, <laughs> her fireball charger to get that going again. But but other than that, let's see, if we move on, there's the the, the scene where she basically is turned away, uh, and then she kind of... But she then she stays up all night through the rain 
everything, and she's just staring at the coin and going through her list. And the list isn't kind of short; it's only a few names. But that's I think that's that's a that's that's a good change, sort of, or not a good change. It's just a good thing because it allows people to keep track. If, you, if she's listening, r- rattling off like ten names, you're going to be like, "Wait, who's on the list?" But this way, it's it's a nice tight list that everyone can remember and be focused on. That's definitely the type of thing I focused on. Like, who's she say? How many? Four different names. Okay, Mountain, yeah. Cersei, Marin Trant, and. I forget who's the other one. Uh, uh, Walter Frey. Oh, of course, Walter of Frey, course, right. Walter Frey. Yes. Which it, one thing it made me think about a little bit was like the names because she, she had been saying other names in the past, and I wonder how much she's like changing her mind about which names, how much she's aware of who's still alive or dead. Um, she well, she had Joffrey on there, and she had the Hound on there, and right? All they're that, gone now. You yeah. need to have them on there anymore. And I, I, it occurred to me that I don't, I don't think she ever had Tywin on her list. I don't but think she did she either. If she did. She definitely doesn't have him now, but I wonder, would she even know that he's dead? How would she know he's dead? Hmm. But I wonder, she had interaction with him, maybe decided not to, maybe she doesn't blame him, maybe she knows he didn't want to kill Ned, that's freaking Joffrey, that's someone else's fault, not Tywin's. Yeah, Tywin wasn't even there. <laughs> Tywin doesn't deserve to die, well, maybe Tywin does. <laughs> if she really thought about it, she might want him dead too, but <laughs> he's not He's not her focus, that's for sure. But uh, uh, I, would, I was going to say, one name she was definitely saying before she didn't say this time was Ellen Payne. Yes, the that's true. Sword, You're right. Ellen so. Payne's name isn't on there anymore. And he certainly isn't dead. Actually, good news on him. That the uh, long time back, the, it was it was revealed that the actor playing Ellen Payne had terminal cancer, and he decided to, you know, live out his life. He went he went on tour. Uh, he's a musician, and he decided to do one last tour. But his cancer's in remission now, oh. and this is this is four years later, and he's still he's still around and making music. So great for him. Hopefully that continues. Um, I, I did. Maybe I, he'll even pop back up in the show. That is a positive thing, obviously. Um, I was a thought I had about her not naming Ellen Payne. I, I wonder how much you seem to kind of chalk it up to a, I don't know a filmmaking marketing sort of decision, you know. But I, I wonder on some level if she changed his mind, changed her mind about him. I wonder if I remember that moment when uh, Sandor was on trial by the Brotherhood Without Banners, right? Yeah. And he's like, "I'm not one to question a prince. I'm just following orders." You can call me a murderer if you want, but, you know, don't don't get all high and mighty. You know, if you want to kill me, go ahead, but this is a bullcrap trial, yeah. you know. And I wonder, and at that time, she's like, no, no, I hate you, and she wanted to kill him. <laughs> but I wonder if over time she's got a better understanding, you know. I wonder if she's... He was just doing his job. He's just basically a man. He's just a sword. A yeah, Ellen sword. Payne didn't decide to kill Ned. He's, you know... No hard uh, feelings from him. He doesn't... He's not going to go target more Starks. Yeah. <laughs> if he hadn't done it... And I. Did someone else make this argument at one point, too? I almost feel like the, the, this train of thought's been had somewhere. I can't remember if we talked about it, if I read it somewhere, but uh, if he hadn't killed Ned, someone else would what would have happened? Yeah, right? just, he would have been killed, and someone else would have killed yeah, Ned. Yeah. Yeah, someone else would have swung the sword instead. It's really just, yeah, it's, just, it's really not a, it's not personal in that <laughs> Joffrey case. Joffrey would have been like, what? Ellen Payne doesn't want to do it? Maybe I'll be a better person now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I shouldn't kill him. I should, I should listen to Ellen Payne. Who doesn't speak? Who can't? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then we have the scene in the alley where, which we briefly referenced, and Arya shows no fear towards these men. Or at least shows no fear, which is kind of interesting. Uh, that's a that's a theme that comes up later uh, in a different part of the episode when Dario mentions how important it is to still have fear because it allows you to know how other people think. Yeah, you have fear, yeah. and we'll cover that more later. But I think that was kind of an interesting, subtle parallel here that Arya is not show. Arya has no fear of these men. I mean, she pulls her sword out. She's wary. She's not just going to, you know, sit there and talk to them. But she didn't run away. 
she faced them. She didn't. She looked them in the eye, and she, you know, she had that great line like, "Nothing's worth anything to a dead person." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that line. And then you know, not Jaken appears, and they run away. And she follows them, and you know, to me, to me, uh, some part of me is a little annoyed by this because I, I think that there's there's so much that needs to be covered. This is one of my few complaints with this episode that it just kind of I didn't understand. It didn't seem necessary. It seemed like a little bit of that was just time wasting. You know, like Arya, she's just floating around Bravos, and why? What was the purpose of Jake and rejecting her, and then coming to save her? Why not just do something? I don't know. I, I, it was a little weird. It was just a little something was a little off about that. I liked it. Arya's reactions, her acting is always phenomenal. Her, I loved her face when she's knocking on the door. She's like, "Wonder what's going to happen here." And their conversations were cool. I loved the man's line. I loved J- not Jaken's line. You can go anywhere else. You know, yeah. I have nowhere else to go. You have everywhere else yeah, to go. Yeah. That was that was great. So the dialogue was really good, but I, I I thought it was a little bit of a waste, even though it was really well done. I took it to be, uh, I don't know how to say this, a test. You know what I mean? Like I I even had th- again going through my thoughts of like, what's going on in this building? You know, it's this huge <laughs> door, this huge building. She like knocks on the door, and then like. Again, some level of filmmaking necessity or whatever, but she couldn't have waited more than like three seconds, like knocked on her door again. And like, you think someone's just standing there waiting for someone to knock? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, she knocks again right away, like, give him yeah, a second. Yeah. This is huge. And you, then you when barely knocked. <laughs> does open a door, it occurred to me, like, what if they open a door? What if someone was standing there with a dagger and as soon as the door opened, like, killed him? <laughs> there, I didn't see any people. Again, I, I understand there might be some mystical element involved there. But I kind of chalked up the fact that they're not just going to let anyone who walks in, hey, I got this coin, Valor Margolis. Oh, come on in. We'll do, what do you need? You know, I can. I think it's fair for her to have to go through some sort of test or trial to be observed. You know, and it seems she passed, if you will. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. So we, we, it's hard to go too much farther with that. She's walked into the temple, and that's all we see for now. I assume we'll see more of her probably next episode if not certainly by episode four i can't imagine going two whole episodes without aria she's just way too popular and her storyline is a bit isolated from everything else there's no other none of the other characters that seem important are with her so her story is very standalone at this point and you, you wonder how any thought actually good that's a good question for you sean how, any thoughts on her eventual return to the rest of the storyline like how does she maybe get back to westeros if she does you know, there's nobody else even in Bravos. that's, I'm, you know. I'm kind of glad you asked that question because this is the thought that I've been having. I, throughout the series, I've felt like there's this sort of long-term, I don't know how to say this, uh, sort of a, a big-picture setup for the show is we've got this threat in the north, we'll say ice and zombies or whatever, and this threat, depending on your perspective, threat in the west of dragons and fire and Danny, you know, from a Westerosian perspective, you know. And it... Eventually, those are going to converge and present themselves. And in the meantime, there's all this politicking in King's Landing that probably in a big picture is petty. You know, it doesn't really matter. In fact, it's been pointed out by Jon Snow and some other characters. It doesn't really matter. It's just an Iron Throne when there's zombie army attacks. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, well, I feel like we're kind of closing in on it. You know, we've got some characters converging. Um, I was even thinking this episode, we kind of covered almost everything. You know, a lot of times certain characters left out. Obviously, we haven't even seen Bran. If I understand right, he's not even going to be in this whole season. That's the um, word, yeah. But it's a little easier to cover all the different storylines when they're connected together. And we right? see two uh, two things kind of get yeah, close. Stannis we'll, we'll, and Jon are together. And, and we have and Brienne we and, and uh, Podrick and kind of Sansa merge, kind of, at least temporarily, yeah. with Sansa. And, Luke and Luke. we see Varys is heading towards Danny. It hasn't happened yet. But my point is that um, as this starts to happen, in my mind, I'm like, oh, man, it's... 
It's gonna end. <laughs> I don't well, slow down. Slow down. This could go on for generations. Don't don't get fire and ice together yet. <laughs> you know, like well, anyway, to your question, I'm not sure how Arya fits into all this. I don't know. It's uh, I I've been kinda of wondering. It's almost I almost feel like I don't know what their plans are. I don't know what the plans are for the book or the show, but I can just imagine like Danny comes back and her and Jon Snow get married and Stannis bows and <laughs> every, Westeros is happily ever after and Varys <laughs> d- accomplishes his goal and Tyrion <laughs> becomes the lord of Castle Rock. <laughs> and Arya gets her own spinoff. Oh, oh you know, show. I don't know. I'm just making that up, but I just, I don't know. I can see that happening. Her storyline is very interesting and popular and disconnected, I think. You know, so. well, we'll revisit that question later. Then maybe you, maybe something will strike you and, and, and inspire you to come up and think of how it might fold back into itself. And of course, I don't know because well, the way the show is going to do it might be different than what happens in the books. And I won't say even whether or not she's even gotten back into the main plot line of the books at this point, or whether she's still on her own. I'll leave that kind of hanging. For all you guys know who haven't read the book, she could be dead in the books. Oh, <laughs> that's probably not the case. Probably not. Probably. <laughs> eh, eh, probably. <laughs> About as likely as Janice. Uh, <laughs> coming around. So like you said, though, this, this, this episode did cover more locations, more plot lines, even though some of them were kind of combined. In the first episode, there were four locations with some sub-locations, basically four regions. We just had the Vale and the Wall and Essos and King's Landing. This, this episode, we had six locations. The Vale, the Wall, King's Landing, Dorne, Essos... And Bravos. So we've covered Bravos. Let's move on to the Veil. Now, the Veil, we, as we said, we had a couple of plot lines kind of clash, and, and it looks like they're only temporarily merged from the sound of it. Sansa is going to have Brienne and Podrick following her. Um, this was an interesting scene. A couple of subtle, subtle things that I wanted to point out here. The Sansa asks Littlefinger, you know, you got that letter. You know, what was in that letter? And he's like, oh, you are being observant. Now, when he said that, I, I was thinking, he's just trying to, for one, he is giving her encouragement. But on the other hand, I think he's just trying to make her feel better. Because she's still pretty naive, even though she's learning. And I think she thinks she's farther ahead than she is. And he's still kind of toying with her a bit and not telling her the whole story. And it gets, we're inter- this scene is interrupted by cutting over to Brianna Podrick. But I was expecting Sansa to ask, who are you marrying? Yeah. But the underlying question, it may not be who are you marrying, but whose marriage proposal did you accept? It doesn't have to be his marriage. And again, that's not a book spoiler. This is not book related at all. It's just the way he said it is. Oh, you're. My marriage is. The, the potential is. is the marriage Sansa's proposal. getting married to somebody. That's, it, could, it doesn't even have to be Sansa, but yes, that's a possibility. It could be Robin. Robin right. There's several um, people that it could be. I, that didn't. Those are the two main choices. But I do want to point out. Besides himself, there's three people, and he's one of them. Sansa's is another, and Robin is the third. I, I do want to take a little credit here for for taking note of him getting that note. I was curious, what was that note? I wanted to know up what again. That was. Yeah, 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 good job. <laughs> I, I I feel like they don't put random things like that in a show for no reason. You know, that's the one reason I like the show. I feel like pretty much everything there is for a reason. I try to like identify every little thing they're doing and think about what it might be. Yeah. And there's an interesting, there's an, also an interesting bit of conversation that happens here that's, I, I'm not sure what to think of it, but I, it was very curious. And when Sansa ref, is talking to Littlefinger about ale and how she says, 
I don't see what the big deal is. And he says, it gives men courage. And he, of some course, men. Uh, some men courage. And she asked, does it give you courage? And that's a, a kind of recurring theme of her growth is that she's asking these pointed questions. And he's, and he responds, he, a lot of times he's like, oh, like, oh, that was a good question to ask. But a lot of times I think it's more like, that's a pretty good question to ask. But really there's more, to, you know, it's, it's, she's still just scratching the surface of the level of intrigue. That the question implies that he doesn't have courage. There's a little bit of a jab at him. She took a lot of jabs at Joffrey too, by the way. Yeah. With the, you know, I, I, I've said before, I like Sansa. I really <laughs> like Sansa. I yeah. think uh, maybe she's not as far ahead as she thinks she is, but I, she's way farther ahead than anyone gives her credit for. I agree opinion. with that. I think that's true. Yeah. She's certainly, and and she, and I think that's clearly happening. Her arc is showing that she's going to continue growing and learning, and. She may realize that she hasn't learned quite as much as she thought she has at some point, or, or not. You know, she may just kind of go on less naive than she was. Or she may turn into, you know, a really smooth operator, a really great player of the Game of Thrones. A lot of people have been predicting that for a while, but it remains to be seen whether that will be the case. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Now, when Brienne comes to her and kneels and says, Lady Sansa, you know, you should come with me, Bubba. What was your take on that? Of course... It's hard for her to just be like, yeah, I'd rather go with you, you know, with Littlefinger and all these guards there. Like, yeah, what is yeah. she going to say? Do you think that she was being honest, or do you think that she, a part of her maybe wanted to go with Brienne? Or... I, I really like this scene uh, for a, a lot of ways, a lot of reasons. Uh, one, it reminded me last time how we were talking about a lot of characters just kind of charging forward. This is what I want to do, hell or high water, you know? Brienne's kind of the same way. Podrick's like, there's too many, there's a bunch of guys. How many? <laughs> Milady, this isn't the time. She's like, just go get is, some horses. What does a know? bunch mean? <laughs> yeah, she's just going to do it. She just isn't, uh, for better or worse, she just has this mission and this honor and this confidence, and she's not going to like plan something or wait for the right moment. She's going to make her move. And uh, so I, I, I kind of appreciate that uh, in her character and in the presentation of characters in the show. Um, and to that end, I appreciate that everyone who has this what I'm going to call is honorable uh, mentality isn't necessarily correct or smart. Like it, it seems so she must've had such pride. Finally, she found Sansa and she barges it through these guards and drops to her knee and makes this claim. What did she think was going to happen next? She just isn't thinking forward. Did she think Sansa <laughs> was going to be like, Oh really? Okay, let's go. And Peter's like, <laughs> bye. See you later. And like, What did she think was going to happen next? You know, she just doesn't think forward. And, I wish sometimes she would listen to Podrick for once. Yeah, you know? Podrick actually seems to have some pretty good advice. Yes, uh, I, I, of course, I, I've been on Team Podrick for a while. I want, I'm, I've got a few more comments about him in a minute, but let, we're not quite to his scene yet. He grew up in King's Landing. He did. Uh, he has more sense of politics, yeah. and he was around court. He was he was Tyrion's yeah, squire, and so yeah. he got to he got a little insight that way. He got, he he is he has a better mind. He's not necessarily he's not he's nowhere near an expert on intrigue, but he's certainly better than Brienne. Better exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I was gonna say. He's better than Brienne but, uh, and, and he should listen to her a little bit. But I, I I I did really like the interchange there but her between her and Sansa and man I I really liked watching it again too because that's another thing I think Sansa's good at to a Cersei degree. That, that stone face. She just doesn't reveal anything. But if you're keen enough, in my opinion, she was telling Brian that's nice. I appreciate it, but you gotta go. <laughs> You're gonna get in trouble <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, you need to And leave. I think Brienne <laughs> detected it, too. I think she realized it. She stood up and went, she didn't, you know, Peter's like, hey, why don't you stay? And she's like, I'm out of here. She busted, busted out the same way she busted in. Yeah, Sansa knew that, that uh, Brienne's life was in danger as well, and she 
didn't want to just see this person that was trying to help her just die. That, yeah. She's, she's she not so thankless. She might still want you know. the help. But, not, it's not, but she couldn't say so, yeah. Right, exactly. And I think that, uh, and I think she also played it such that Peter, Peter might be keen enough to figure all this out, too. You know what I mean? Or at least suspect it. But, right. Mm-hmm. But I feel like she said what she needed to say to keep Peter happy with her. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, I saw you, Court. You, you know, da da da. I, I love that whole interchange. I thought that was beautifully done. So then we have the the horse ch- chasing scene. Brienne escapes and you know shows her prowess again, able to handle these uh, Vale knights pretty handily. I liked the detail of the sword breaking um, through the Valyrian with the Valyrian steel blade coming crashing through it. I thought that was kind of cool. I don't want to talk about the action too much. It is what it is. Um, I do one thing I do want to point out is. Again, Podrick, the actor playing Podrick, is actually really, really good with horses, and it really shows in that scene. He show, he just acts like he has no control over his horse, but that's all just his skill and driving the horse the way he wants. I think he even knew how to rear up like that, and fall. it was really well done. I, I wanted to point out, too, by the way, not his horse. He stole a horse. Oh, yeah, he stole a horse, yes. I, I, I think <laughs> that Podrick, I think Brienne thinks that Podrick is just inept, and in a lot of ways he is, except he's constantly thrust into scenarios that... He's inept at and does his best and gets better and like he he didn't want he didn't want to go steal horses he didn't want to try to have this <laughs> conflict and but once it happens he's like all right yes ma'am I'll do it let's go my lady and he takes the horse and it's not and I again I think that was like I don't know I'm gonna give credit to the show for being kind of realistic that wasn't his horse that's why it wasn't behaving properly it's not that Padre didn't know what he was doing yeah he knew that he didn't know what he was doing <laughs> this isn't my horse it's not going to do what i tell it to yeah so you know? like good good realistic horse behavior and yeah. really well executed by the actors it involved. seemed like uh Bran like saved Padre's ass but really Bran put Padre in that situation in the first place you know anyway so let's move on i think we, we know that Brienne is going to continue following. She's not daunted by Santa's refusal. She maybe detected some undercurrents there, and she drops the, the the definitive line on Podrick. After Podrick doubts whether they should continue following her or not, she says, do you think she's safe with Littlefinger? And he's like, yeah. all right, good point. So, that was uh, one last point I wanted to make here, too, is that just because, let's say I'm even reading everything wrong with Sansa, and that she really doesn't like Brienne and wouldn't have anything to do with her, that doesn't mean Brienne didn't make the promise. Uh, I think that, That's true. Uh, and and I want to relate that to Jorah. I'm curious what's happening with Jorah. Just because Danny's like pushed him away doesn't mean he doesn't feel loyalty to her. And uh, I'm curious in the same way that it looks like Bran is following there with an intent of helping Sansa one way or the other. I wonder if Jorah is too. Yeah, it's a good parallel. Jorah, Jorah, you know, fighting for Danny or wanting to get back with Danny even though he's been rejected. Brienne, sort of the same way, although not because she's a traitor or anything or did something bad. But that is a good parallel. I actually never thought of that. So let's go to King's Landing. Um, we've covered two locations in our out of our six, about 30 minutes in, so we will keep moving at a fairly brisk pace mm-hmm. here. Now, we see, immediately we see this Dornish threat. Uh, I guess Cersei had already opened it and then put it back together so she could give Jamie the full effect because <laughs> she knew the necklace was in there. Yeah, I kind yeah. of imagine... In the back of my head, that she was, it was like a, it's like a little bit like a puzzle box, and she had to figure it out. She couldn't figure it out. She had to get Kyburn to help her to put it back <laughs> together, and that's why she made Kyburn the master of whispers because <laughs> yeah. he figured out the puzzle box properly. <laughs> but really, never mind. She might have had to let him be privy to certain things. So. That's true. So, but the threat is major. Cersei is being extremely unreasonable. She's complaining at Jamie about all these things, and and you know, saying, hey, you know, you never did this, you never did that, you know, you're worthless, you're helpless, you know, don't call him our daughter then, you know, all this stuff. She's just basically scared and angry 
uh, really concerned for her daughter, uh, which any mother would be. You know, as, as, as awful as Cersei can be, she is still a mother and has a mother's feelings of protectiveness and helplessness, as much power she has. Marcella is completely out of her protection right now, and that would make any mother very scared, if not worse. And Jamie, you can set, tell, Jamie Nikolai does a great job of acting in the scene. He, his eyes get a little glassy. He gets really emotional as well. And he's like, I'm going to go save her. That's that. That's what I have to do. What are your thoughts on that scene? Uh, I liked it. I, uh, it kind of leads into the next scene. I don't know if you wanted to talk about sure. LeBron and everything. Yes, let's do it. I kind of knew that that was coming. Uh, and so I wasn't like, woo But I would have been like, woo I was woo-hoo when the commercial came. Because Bron's one of my favorite characters. And so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I thought he was just gone, you know, at the end of last season. So him coming back with Jamie, uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. And um, uh, and I also can't help but wonder how much Jamie decided at that moment. Okay, fine, I'll go find Marcella. I wonder if he had already been kind of stewing over that. I, I imagine in a lot of ways Jamie's trying to find himself, find a redemption, find a role, you know. And I wonder if it was already kind of in his mind to take some action, whether it was specifically had to do with Doran or Marcella, but. Uh, so, Braun, we were reintroduced to Braun in his new life as he continues to climb the ladder of ambition. He went from lowly, lowborn sellsword to knight, to a uh, somewhat well-known knight, given his heroism on the Blackwater. He's head of the city watch. Oh, no, he was. He was yeah. relieved of that. Well, but I'm just saying, oh, he, he was. Yes, to you're that right. point. That yeah, was his job for a while. That's, that's another <laughs> Still part feather, of his path. Yeah, yeah feather, his feather in his path, path there, yeah. Um, but... <clears throat> he's and he's showing that he's how his lack of scruples again he talks about how oh your sister's mean to you well mean people have it coming you know and mm-hmm. I, that, I that to me was a, a lot was said in that moment because he's a he's insinuating that he's going to murder her sister and she's happy about it <laughs> and b this is right after we have cersei you know, being you know, who was one of the meanest characters in all the show, and he's talking about how these things come around because these things come back around. And so, I wonder if there's some like, well, you know, we reap what we sow. And I thought about this in a couple of different ways. Uh, one, I didn't necessarily think that what was the girl's name? Was it Lolly? Lollies, Lollies, Lollies yeah. with an S, L O L L Y S. Okay. I didn't assume that she got what he was saying. I thought I took it that she was a little. No, more she's naive. she's yeah. She's supposed to, in the uh, here's a, here's where I'll use a, a rare book reference to clarify something. In the book, she is basically mentally retarded, okay. if not fully. It's not entirely clear, but she's a, considered a lackwit, and she doesn't seem too bright here either. Yeah, she didn't seem you know simple per se, but she definitely didn't necessarily seem keen to politics. Right. She didn't. Know? I get what you're saying. She didn't understand that Bronn was going to kill. Her yeah. sister, but she did take she uh, she liked what he was saying yeah, about she how she appreciated him supporting her. If yes, you will. Yeah. yes. Um, and uh, th- now, flip side is Braun made a comment, something along the lines of, "I've been all around the world, and one thing I've seen is that mean comes around," <laughs> which is true, largely true at least. But Braun has also seen that nice doesn't come around. <laughs> He's yeah. seen plenty of mean people die, uh, get what they should, but plenty of good people not get what they should too so i i on one hand maybe we're supposed to see cersei's meanness you know being set up with bronze comment but on the other hand i don't I, i'm not sure maybe i'm not sure what it take from all this you know a quick note on geography stokeworth castle is very close to king's landing so that would not have been a long trip for jamie it's one of the closest castles and was historically a 
has historically been part of the Crownlands domain, their fief. It's not part of the Riverlands or the Stormlands or anything like that. It's just north of King's Landing. It's part of the royal domain rather than being sworn to one of the major kingdoms. So, and and in 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 the past, they've they've been allied to the Targaryens in the past because of their closeness to Dragonstone and all that. So, I don't think that necessarily is going to matter. But it's just a good it's good to keep track of the geography. So, by the way, I just thought of something when you brought up geography. It made me think of something. Last week, I was wondering where are they going. Sansa was like, "You told them we were going to this place, but we're going west instead." And I'm like, "Well, you know, trust everyone." Not all that whole conversation, but it's in my mind. I'm like, "Where are they going?" He specifically did say somewhere so far. Even Cersei can't get to you. <laughs> and in my mind, I, they're, they start off pretty far east in the first place. Yeah. So almost anywhere they go, I, I imagine they might have to go west first and then go north or south. Well, Brienne noted that they were taking the east road from where they were <clears> when <throat> they left the inn just then at the end of that, uh, during that, at the end of their scenes. The east road. They were going farther east, apparently. Headed east. Yeah. Huh. Which is interesting. I don't know what to make of that. That means they're heading towards the towards the ocean, or heading towards the maybe heading to a port. Or weren't they headed west at first? Didn't they say they were going? Didn't Sansa observe they were going? west? Yes, yes, they were at first going west. He, she thought she told ever they told everyone they were going east, but they actually went west. And, and Sansa's like, "Hey, we're going west," and, and he's like, "Yeah, because we're you know we were lying." <laughs> uh, but then Brienne notes that they're going on the east road, so this could just be a part where they maybe they didn't they weren't very clear on the directions. And the east yeah. road doesn't mean they were going east either, but yeah, I guess that's what. It means. Maybe plans changed. Maybe more deceit. Maybe once they've been like discovered or yeah. the well, battle. We'll, I, I don't know. But we'll wait and see. I, the I, thing I, I'm just combining the thought of which way they were going with the potential of marriage with that note that Littlefinger got. With now the new thought you gave me is that maybe it's Sansa or Robin or someone else getting married. I started to think, well, who are the candidates? Setting <laughs> up a wedding with with Ramsay Bolton? Well, <laughs> with uh, because like, be. like <clears throat> if going guess. so far, Cersei can't get there. It's not Heron Hall. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's I feel like, but it might be the Wall. It might be Winterfell. It, it might be Dorne. It's good. It's an interesting thing that sometimes when they present us a mystery and you can and you try to narrow down the candidates, sometimes the mystery isn't all that mysterious because there's not that many candidates. We're going to see another example of that when we get to the Wall. So keep that in mind. But. We're not going to the wall next. I'm just saying when we get there. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm slightly skipping. We're, we're sort of in King's Landing. We're still in King's about Landing, Jamie, yes. I feel like we're moving toward Dorne, but I want to say a later scene in King's Landing, uh, talking about candidates. I was like so wondering who's going to be the hand of the king. I was like scrolling through all the people who it might be, and I feel like there weren't that many candidates. And I thought uh, Kevin never occurred to me. Tywin's brother never occurred to me. Clearly doesn't seem like it's going to happen at this point, <laughs> but I kind of kick myself for not thinking of him as a candidate before, and she still didn't name anyone. She still didn't name anyone, and, and Kevin, I think, did kind of, like, figure out what's going on. She's basically the hand of the king without saying it. Yeah, he, yeah. he accused her, basically, of that. She's yeah. like, you're sitting in the hand of the king's seat, basically. She's like, oh, yeah. yeah, but I'm just, you know, I'm just keeping it warm. Yeah. And then, meanwhile, I've appointed Kyburn as the Master yeah. of Whispers, who Pycelle objects to for having no, uh, not only being, you know, kicked out of the Citadel, but for what experience does he have in this job at yeah. all? How is, he, how is he capable? And she doesn't say he is. She just says, well, he's loyal. And that's exactly what Kevin is complaining about. He says, look, you're just stacking your, the small council with sycophants. Like, if the king is going to tell, I want to hear it from the king. She's basically trying to, he's trying to undermine Cersei's attempts to, you know, be the 800-pound gorilla and be like, hey, I'm in charge. It's my son that's the king. And Kevin's like, no, no, yeah. I don't think so. You have just messed things up too much. 
you know, I'm not going to sit here and, and let you mess I it thought, up more. I thought it was going to work, too. I thought that the line she took, she was like, because he's loyal. I thought that was like, hint, hint, you better yeah. be loyal, too. But they were all like, we're not being loyal. Screw you. you know, well, Mace like, Tyrell was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm well, with you. You may be master yeah. of coin and master <laughs> chips. Like, he's like, like, oh, I'm all proud. Oh, look at me. Yeah, he puffs up. He seems pretty naive to what's yeah, he, going or, on. Or just dumb. Yeah, one of the yeah. Or both. Yeah, he's, he's – he, you remember how his own mother treated him. The Queen of Thorns just, like, kind of brushed him off yeah, that yeah. one time. <laughs> that was supposed to be very telling. And I, I think uh, we're reminded every once in a while that Mace Tyrell is – not highly regarded and he has done He's very little to to show otherwise more of a placeholder yeah yeah definitely but the other thing about this scene i thought was interesting is uh besides kevin's reaction is we have the scene with the dwarf real quickly we have that's when yeah, we see yeah. the dead dwarf and we see that cersei is just so after Tyrion that she doesn't even want to tell do anything to these people for killing the wrong guy they kill an innocent completely innocent man and there's no penalty for it. They're just like, no, I don't want to discourage other people from going all the doors. Yeah. So we have to just let this slide for now. So she is just, she's out, she doesn't care who gets caught up in that. She just does not want to let Tyrion get away no matter what. And then we have Kyburn being like, I'll take the head. Yeah, I thought that was What is that? I mean, we already know that's kind of what he got in trouble for was uh, the same type of thing that in the real world doctors got in trouble for you know, investigating science, you know, yep. and I think that... Doing yeah, that, on the wrong ways, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm kind of torn. They seem on some level to be presenting him as bad or dark, but I. But it's not like Pycelle's like this champion of honor, <laughs> and when, when Pycelle is your enemy, I don't necessarily think that you're bad or dark, you <laughs> it's know. It's a good I point. Pycelle yeah. is like, he's not exactly upstanding himself. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure what to think of this Kyburn character. So far, I, I've... I feel like I'm kind of rooting for him. I, I don't know how <laughs> significant he'll be or what I want to happen, but I I don't think that he's an evil character. I'll, I'll say that. Maybe not a good character, but... Uh... Not an evil character. Okay, so um, let's go to Dorne. That is where we. it seems to be the, the, the correct place to move to next. We have these two very interconnected plot lines. Jamie is going to be heading there soon. So we get to see a little preview of the place he's going to. We get to see... Oberyn Martell's family. We get to see a little bit of Dorne itself. Not much, just a little, you know, just a little tease. I'm sure we'll see more of it later as Jamie and Bronn go there. But we start off with Ilaria, Oberyn's paramour, who is kind of spying on Tristane, who is the heir to Dorne, and uh, Marcella, and they're together. And they're kind of looking around, like, to see if anyone's watching. And, and you wonder, what is it they're worried about anyone seeing? Uh, I, kind of confu- I, I wasn't sure what, what that meant. But there's, so there's like a couple of levels of secrecy going on here. Kind of, Ilaria's kind of looking at her, and you know, after we, you find out later, that she's wants to, you know, myrtle, myr- myrtleate? <laughs> I combined murder with mutilate there. And that's a new word. Official. Uh, so she wants to, you know, cut her fingers off. You know, like, want to send them piece to piece. It's really bloody. And we get introduced to Alexander Sadiq, who is one of the biggest names to get added to the cast in a major role. And it's very exciting. He's been in a lot of great movies like The Kingdom of Heaven, and he's, he was in 24. Right. He was in Star Trek, uh, uh, Deep Space Nine for a long time. He's been in a lot of roles. He's also one of the few actually Arab actors playing Arab roles. Usually Hollywood gives those, those roles to Latinos, which is a little odd. 
but I guess most people can't tell the difference. I, I, I hope for the day when people can tell the difference so they can stop doing that and cast people of the correct ethnicity. That said, this is Dorne. There is no ethnicity here. This is a, a fantasy ethnicity, so it doesn't really matter. But, well, it does matter, but not in that way. <laughs> so His name, by the way... Is Doran? Doran. Well, they, 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 that's how we've always heard it said, but the show is pronouncing it uh, Doran or Doran. How, how are they saying? I can't remember. They're saying it differently, but it's it's it doesn't matter. It's D O R A N. So okay. say it how you want. George himself has always said that there's really aren't correct and incorrect pronunciations, just like there are on the real world. People will say things differently, so we won't get hung up on the pronunciation. But yeah, so Doran, 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 any of those. And you know. Tristan is his son. eldest son. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's unclear if he has other children. In the books, he has three children. Uh, but he does not. Apparently, he may just have the one here in in the show, or not. It's not clear. The oldest child. The oldest child is the only one that matters, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a confrontation between Ilaria and Doran there. And what did you think of that confrontation? The way they were kind of pushing back and forth, and and I thought it was a lot of good dialogue there. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, I uh, in my mind, I, I had this idea that Doran in general had a soft spot. In their hearts for children, but now I feel like maybe it's just Doran himself, <laughs> and maybe not the whole country. Yeah, uh, yeah. I remember when Oberon told Cersei. Cersei, you know, we don't hurt children there. Maybe Oberon and Doran both felt the same way. Not necessarily the whole country. It's definitely but echoes Cersei, of that conversation. Cersei did yeah. respond with everywhere in the world they hurt little girls, you know, and uh, it seems like she was probably right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Doran certainly seems intent on protecting Marcella, um, but I and I, I didn't think about it too much. The way you described this sort of like uh, I don't know how to say it concern, you know, that Tristan and Marcella seem to have. Maybe they also know, hey, you're out of place. You're a Lannister. The Lannisters are our enemies. You're lucky to be here. I, I'm taking a chance by flirting with you so much. You know, uh, you wonder how much Marcella and Tristan even know at this point. Like, yeah, they know? yeah. Like, they, are they isolated? Are they kept? You know, cloistered in court there, or at their water gardens, technically, which is kind of like a, you know, yeah. summer residence type thing. Elaria Sand does seem to be a pretty bold character in the first place, and uh, I imagine her position is such that, she, you know... As Doran said, you know, I'll always have regard for you because you yeah. made my brother happy. And they have kids together, too. Yeah. And she mentions them, the Sand Snakes. You know, they're with me, she says. The Sand Snakes are the eldest daughters of, of uh, Doran. Or of Oberyn, I'm sorry. His bastard daughters with with uh, it's not clear on the show whose children they are uh, in the books. It's it's delineated, but I don't know if they've made change to that yet or not. So we'll see who who the mothers are, if even that's important uh, in the books. Some of the sand snakes are Ilarias, but it's the younger ones who are too young to matter at this point. But it's possible they'll rearrange it a little bit, and some of them, one or two of them, will actually be the daughter of of Ilaria. But we'll, we'll have to wait on that. Are they daughters of Oberyn or Doran? Oberyn. Or... I misspoke. They're Oberyn's okay, daughters. Okay. Yes. Doran. Apparently, the show there are Oberyn. Doran has no other children, bastard or no. At this point, we only know about Tristane. Um, so he, there's some great lines. He was my brother long before he was anything to you. You know, like yeah. he's like, look. Don't tell me how much I should grieve for my brother. He's like, yeah. I, I haven't forgotten. Just because I'm not out for blood like you are, doesn't mean I don't care. It doesn't mean I'm not really sad, blah, you know, et cetera. And he's very strong about those. Uh, you know, he, he talks back to her, you know, keeps her, he has good responses basically to everything she says. Um, he's like, we're lucky the whole country doesn't decide yeah, <laughs> whether we go to war. Line, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, really good dialogue. I thought the dialogue in this episode overall was really excellent. A lot of really witty, good comebacks, good people saying something and someone else just kind of 
proving, you know, teaching them a lesson. Incidentally, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but I did appreciate that scene uh, at the wall when John gets elected. I don't think he said a word. That whole scene. Yeah, uh, no clever comebacks from him, you know. It's like, <laughs> interesting true. difference in how things were presented, <clears throat> characters behave. Quiet leadership of a sort, yeah. Uh, so then we have a, a threat from Alaria. She's walking away. She says, you know... As long as I'm in charge of Dorne, this is what's happening. And she says, and how long will that be? And she walks mm-hmm. away. And Ar- Ario Hota is the big guard guy. And he goes, like, should I kill her? <laughs> you know? And he's like, no, don't kill her. You know, he's like, he's like, he can tell he's really irritated and angry, but he's, and concerned. But he's like, no, we're not going to kill her. There was, by the way, I, this is the thing <laughs> I keep forgetting to bring up. And one of the previews before the show started, there was an image of Hilaria Sand with spears on her. Uh, and I... I even remember wondering at first, is she still in King's Landing? Uh, clearly she's not, but clearly she's stirring out trouble. Mm-hmm. She might get some spears on her. <laughs> <I was laughs> yeah. Not quite sure where this is all going. Mm-hmm. but uh, Yeah, that's it. yeah. we'll have to see where that what that's all related to. But yeah, something's, something's coming for her. We haven't seen the last of Alaria Sand. So, uh, any other thoughts on what we might expect to see in Dorne or what you saw your first glimpses of Dorne? It wasn't, we didn't get to see much of the country. We just really saw a little bit of the castle, which is really, that was just the water gardens. Yeah, I, I assume we'll see more if, if Jamie's heading there. And we did see, at uh, least, backing up just slightly, we did see that they know that that's where Marcella is. Yeah. Because yeah. Oberyn mentioned that she was at the water garden. So, Jamie yeah. at least knows where to go. Yeah. Uh, we'll, so, we'll see if he gets there. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose there's a chance he won't get there, but I, I, so the, the trailer seems the trailer seemed to indicate that she's going he she that he's going to get there, but what awaits him is anyone's guess at this point. Even the leaked episodes, which we haven't watched, I don't think go that far. So there aren't even spoilers on that yet. Uh, all right, so let's move on to the next location. Let's go to the wall. The wall and Marine, I think, were the most major events. Or the most impactful things happen in the series, whereas the other plot lines were a bit more setup, a bit more arc building, and a bit of new character development, and kind of seeing, getting, letting everybody see where things are going. Meanwhile, the wall things are already really happening, and in Marine they're kind of a step forward as well. Things are already happening. So first, the wall. The first thing we have is a scene with Celise and Shireen and Sam and Gilly, and a couple of things about that scene we're reminded we get a little. Primer on grayscale and how what happens to people who have grayscale go all the way through them. We see Gilly tells her story about her sisters having grayscale and about how her father had to you know keep them isolated and eventually had to kill them, and that's obviously very sad. And do you think that's foreshadowing? You you want I, I've wondered about that if, if if you know grayscale it's been alluded to in a few places. I don't see how it could come into play necessarily, but what are your thoughts on that? Uh, uh, it's very I subtle. Uh, maybe, maybe I should have. I didn't see it as foreshadowing. I just saw it as uh, Shireen is the girl's name, right? Shireen yes. is the mom, right? Yes. Uh, I saw it more as like a, I don't want to say this, but her being exposed to cruelty of the world, um, especially with the follow up when Sleece, you know, it's all your books and you still don't even know, you know, like that. that that's that's what I took from that scene. Um, and. When Celise is leaving, you know, Celise comes in and makes everybody leave, and she's, you know, as usual, she's horrible to her daughter, just really mean and, and overbearing and, and without any kind of compassion or love in her voice at all. And they argue about her closeness to Gilly and how 
you know, she's a wildling and she could strike at you because, you know, we killed their king and they want revenge. And she says, Gilly's not like that. She's like, you don't know what she's like. You know, you don't, you have no idea what people will do. And to me, that says, whenever there's a line like that, we have no idea what people will do. It's so, a lot of times it's, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. And what is, and and then what is the next person going to do? Because one thing that the show has done a lot of is they'll say, they'll end a scene with some sort of provocative, open-ended line, and then that will somehow relate to the next scene. Yeah. And the next thing we see is Stannis and John and Davos, and they're talking about, you know, you know, people, don't you want to, you know, don't, do you want to really be under Thorn? You know, he's going to be Lord Commander. Do you really want to? I don't reward. I don't punish people for being brave. You know, he's trying to talk, and all of a sudden, boom! How about being John Stark? How about I legitimize you? Because kings can do that, and you can be Lord of Winterfell. Like, whoa! What, how, what was that when that scene when that happened? What was you? What were your thoughts? Like, was that a major moment? Or <coughs> how major like it was. was it? But remember, I already said I don't think John can do anything but stay at the wall. I don't think that he can. Uh, and that was a good... at, at this point. He's already taken it. He's stuck to it too many times. You know what I mean? Like, he, he can't... I, I feel like he's past the point of reconsideration. And you know? you're right. He refuses it yeah. within... Like, it's not even... There isn't even a between scene. It's just like yeah. Sam... It's like, you could do this, you could do this. And he's like, I'm not doing it. Like, it's not yeah. even two minutes later. Yeah. And uh, I also was, like, slightly surprised that Stannis was even proposing it. Because I feel like him, of all people, should understand the idea of honor, integrity, and vowels, and all this other stuff, you know? Well, Stannis and, is also the king who thinks even what he wants is above the existing laws. So. Right, I, which which is how I can see why he would propose it. Um, it's however, just what we thought would happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I still feel it was in line with this character. It's a very subtle moment, but I like Stannis. I like there's a moment when, when John explains, it's like, I can't remember the exact interplay dialogue, but basically John is explaining, no, I can't. I took my vowels. And Stannis is really a subtle, quick moment, but Stannis is like, kind of like he, nods. He like, approves. Yep, yeah. I understand. You're right. I, I almost, I, I'm almost proud of you for saying that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of like how he respected Mance for not kneeling, even, yeah, though it wasn't, yeah. even though it wasn't in line with his plans at all. He's exactly. like, well, grudging respect. It's respect. not what I wanted, but I understand it. Yeah. You're, you're a man of honor. I see that. You know, yeah, I, I could not make the offer, but I got it. It's I got grudging you. respect. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, I was something I was looking forward to seeing how they carried these scenes off. Um, John and Stannis is together. I think uh, are are there's a lot of common ground there. I like uh, I like seeing them have dialogue. I will say I, I don't know if it's just enough time of John being on the screen or his plot getting intertwined with other characters. Maybe even having read the first book, but I definitely like him more than I used to. I definitely used to not care about John's storyline very much, but now <laughs> I actually do quite care about. It. <laughs> That's good. Um, so then we have Stannis accepting other hard truths where John says to him, look, I'm not, you know, the wildlings will never follow you. He says, who will they follow you? And he says, no, one of their own. And this is what I was referring to before about how, if you think one of their own, who could that be? And you narrow it down and you're like, can you, how many living wildlings can you yeah, name? Yeah, it's pretty much got to be torment. Right. right? Who, yeah. Can you <laughs> literally, can you name another living wildling right now? I can't, no. Neither can I. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) it's like, oh, well, yeah, and and let alone another leader. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And we've already seen them fall of Tormund. Gilly, Gilly. Okay, Gilly is another living wildling. Gilly's going to lead the wildlings into Winterfell. There is one other wildling (laughs) we can name. Maybe there's one other that I'm forgetting. Uh, Gilly's baby. (laughs) (laughs) Stannis will have to wait for him to grow up. So that, so that, I think that is kind of they kind of telegraph that. If you think about it at all, kind of like, well, they're really pointing towards Tormund being the guy that they all follow. Yeah, that does make sense. I guess that's what's going to happen. We'll have to see. But we have <laughs> another 
cat appearance. Again, this is another good time to remind everybody that we are the only Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones podcast infested by cats and beards. Other <laughs> ones have beard infestations, but not both. So we, we have to deal with that from time to time. Now... Get to deal with that. Get to, get, deal, get with to deal with that, you're right. <laughs> so then we immediately go from the scene with John and Stannis and Davos to the hall where we start with Thorne makes a joke about how oh, you would think that they have venison stew. You know, that's the only reason there's so many people here gathered at once. Everybody's so excited. <laughs> but it isn't exciting at all. It's, it's tense and they're not sure what's going to happen. It looks like Thorne has the advantage. Jano Slink stands up and gives his speech, which, to be fair, was a pretty good speech, even though we hate who it was coming from. But then we get the karma of Sam calling him out. It was really nice. I'm glad to see Sam, uh, glad to see Slint called out for his cowardice. The reactions weren't what I thought they were, but you'd think that people would be more upset by Slint being a coward, but instead they just laughed at him. Um, but... I sort of assumed that they must already know, and this is the first time it's been publicly stated, but they've already kind of dealt with it and made their jabs and made their jokes and their decisions about You're probably it. right. That would make sense. That would fit with, with their reactions. And so John immediately refuses. He tells Sam he's not going to accept this this deal, and that gets kind of driven home by the fact that in a few <laughs> minutes later he's elected Lord Commanders. Now he's really not going to, almost certainly not going to become John Stark, uh, though it's not out of the question. I, I I think you're right with with your guess there that John's not going to break his vows, and he even gave the good reason. Like, look, if I, you know, I, I'll be an oathbreaker, Lord. Like, yeah, who's gonna, can, yeah. you know, who's gonna take me seriously? Um. I think they would take him a little more seriously than he thinks, but he's right, generally, that, that the, the North especially takes vows to the wall very seriously. Even a king letting someone out of their vows is something that maybe isn't complete without precedent, but it's really not done, and it certainly isn't done by a Southerner, a king from the South, who isn't actually sitting on the Iron Throne. So yeah. it, it's it's a little weaker in It's that even sense. pointed out that... They don't even accept him as the king. They accept the Stark as the king. Yeah. But there's still like a catch-22 there. Well, then do you accept John as a snow? But if he became a Stark, but then... (laughs) So we have more great... Again, the dialogue in this episode was really excellent. We have more great dialogue here. We have great speeches. We have the speech by Thorne, or Slint. Then we have the speech by Sam. And then Thorne gets up and he gives his speech about, you know, the reasons why they shouldn't elect John. And those were pretty good reasons, you know, especially if you're just... Put yourself in the mind of the average Night's Watchman who doesn't know what we know. We know that John is a good guy. We know that John didn't, you know, broke his vows only because he had to. We know that what he's saying about Corn Halfhand telling him to join them is true. But if you're just some random Night's Watchman, you don't know that. You don't know that John had to do that. You don't know that Corn ordered him. That could be something that John is just saying. That could be just his way to saving his skin. Or John might not even have said it or said it to everyone. John, I think, is the type to not, not go around trying to justify himself. It's true. Yeah. He is. He is. And, and as you pointed out, he says nothing. By the way, this whole just process. like he just like when Sam is like starts to speak, he's like, "Don't do it. Don't do it." He knows what's happening. Yeah. He's like, "Don't do it." But then it happens, and he is the strong, silent type in in a lot of ways. And by his, the way, Jamie, same thing. Jamie didn't go yeah. around justifying himself. I killed the Mad King because he's going to burn everyone down. And Jamie's like, "I don't need to justify. I'm fucking kick your ass. I don't, I don't care who you are. <laughs> I don't need to justify myself to Ned Stark or anyone. You know what I mean?" Yeah. I know I did what I know was right. The lion know? doesn't concern himself with the opinions of the sheep. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like John's kind of the same way. He's like, look, I know who I am. I know what I did. And I don't need to explain myself to you. You know. Yeah. And John, so John, you know, he accepts that he becomes Lord Commander. And he still doesn't say anything. He's smiling. He also, But he's also, you can tell he's got mixed feelings about it. He's looking around. He meets Thorne's eyes. He looks at Slint. 
his then his friends kind of surround him and and there's a lot of happiness and Maester Aemon of course it's nice to see Maester Aemon supporting him of course we kind of we figured he would more likely to be on John's side than on anyone else's but it was a nice moment where you know it's like it's a tie and Aemon you know puts the final tile in place to to break the tie and yeah it's a very strong scene and it really it, it kicks off John's arc it's now we've now we've got something established the lord commandership is established the the wall is under new leadership what what do you think's next for John what's he going to do he's he's certainly the the vote was close there's a lot of people that thorn that were supporting thorn it's not like he won in a landslide here so yeah. he, you know there's one th- it's it being elected is one thing having people actually obey your orders and and do you know I don't know if if maybe they'll maybe they'll all just fall in line maybe there'll be some pushback it's hard to say I think it'll be interesting, and I think uh, uh, in a lot of ways this show is a, a study on the nature of leadership or whatever. Um, but uh, part of me kind of hopes that Alistair Thorne will accept it, that he'll be a good second man or whatever, you know. Uh, and uh, another part of me thinks a little bit more about, like, what might be more important, whoever won that contest is what is Stannis going to do is how is he going to manage the wildlings is he still going south like <clears throat> that might even be an out if John says hey Alistair Thorne take a take a group of men along with the wildlings and Tormund and Stannis and go take Winterfell back you know what I mean uh I, I'm not sure I think it's interesting it's it's a lot to consider everything that just happened there and how it's all going to play out lots of characters involved I think one thing that ha- should happen is Jano Slinch get his head chopped off. <laughs> I think it's, I, and I'm like half joking, but I'm half serious. I understand what you were kind of like disappointed by the reactions. It seemed like that it should have been more. And in my mind, I kind of assumed everyone kind of already knew, and maybe this was like a public announcement of it. But I still feel like it's it's just a step away from having deserted. You know what I mean? Yeah, he didn't exactly. Actually, leave the wall, yeah. but he effectively left the. He deserted fight his at duty. Wall. Right. He, he, he didn't leave the location, but he left. The Which the penalty for is yeah. death, yeah, you know? yeah, and um, and so I, I I'm not sure. Uh, um, maybe it's the type of thing that they everyone knows he'll get his own eventually, or uh, maybe it's they have bigger concerns at the moment. They can't afford to lose another man. Yeah, they're so short on manpower yeah. in general. That is an, an issue. They may even be, even though he's a coward, they may yeah, well we still kind of need him. One thing even if is, he's not going to fight, have him making barrels or it making is, arrowheads yeah, or something. Yeah, it is a little more surprising to me that they that Alistair Thorne is accepting of him as an ally, but maybe he knew he needed him as an ally to win this election. I wonder if he still will, though. I wonder if at this point, once there's been a public announcement of his cowardice, and I'm not the Lord Commander anyway, all right, Janice Lynn, go clean the latrines. You know? <laughs> You're yeah. lucky we're not chopping your head Thorne off. Thorne maybe doesn't want him as an ally anymore now that he's like, well, I'm not elected, so I don't need, maybe I shouldn't have had you next to me in the first place. That didn't help yeah. with Sam's speech and all. That did not help Thorne's cause when, when he got called out for cowardice. By the way, it was pretty bold of Sam to make that speech. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Sam's character, I feel, is coming along, if you will. Uh, it's Again, it's something we talked about at the end of last season, is that Sam's doesn't seem as courageous as he is. He acts uncourageous, but when it comes down to it, he's pretty courageous. The way he faced down the White Walker, the way he just... And it's because he doesn't have courage for himself, but he has courage for other people. When Gilly, when Gilly's life is on the line, he becomes very brave. With himself, he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily have that inner courage for himself, but he has it for his friends and especially for Gilly. And yeah, he is... He had it for John there. He yeah. was standing up to make that speech for John, not for himself. And that's that's a real thing. You see that in, in the real world a lot, where people like are 
good to other people, but they treat themselves crappily, you know, or they're like they're much better treating everyone but themselves. They're hard on themselves and, and accepting with everybody else. It's, it's very people are hypocrites about their own behavior or not even hypocritical necessarily. That's, that's probably not the right word, but they're inconsistent or uh, with, with the way they treat others versus how they treat themselves. It's like, you know, people treat them, their own being as if it's some other separate entity rather than, you know, hey, if, you're, if, your, goal, if your life philosophy is to treat everybody well, hey, you're, you're a part, a part of, of everybody, everybody, so yeah. you need to treat yourself well too. And I think it's a really interesting part of human psychology that I think sometimes the books and show really do a good job of getting deep into those hard decisions that people have and the, the, the quirks of of how people behave when faced with really powerful threats and challenges. And uh, I like the realism that is presented with how these decisions are. It's not always consistent. It's not always simple. Okay, so that uh, I think that covers it for The Wall. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say about The Wall or about Stannis or about even about Solis or any of the other side characters? Um, I just mind a little thing. I appreciated that moment when, uh, when he read the... The note from uh, oh Mormont's yeah, daughter. I forgot to mention uh, Liana Mormont's daughter. That was that her name, Liana Mormont. Liana Mormont. Yeah, we, we and uh, and John read and kind of chuckled a little and sounds like you find that amusing. And John's <laughs> like, uh, no, <laughs> sir, <laughs> sorry, sir. But actually, yes, I found it hilarious, and so did all of the audience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, I, I I thought it was once again. I thought it was a really good, uh, consistent, and revealing presentation of their characters. That Stannis isn't so naive. To not see the humor in it, but he's is proud enough to point out, hey, hey don't, don't laugh at me, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm still John, the king, you know. Yeah, and John also recognized, okay, that was a little disrespectful of me. I should remember this guy's the king, you know. Like, I, it was good. I, 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 the, I liked it quite a bit. It, it, it also touches on what we were talking about before about how you know sometimes Stannis is respectful of that sort of thing. He's, you, you almost get the sense that he he kind of admits he's like, yeah, my brother talked about how hard the North was to rule, even with your father helping. You know, yeah. they're you know they're unruly and they they want to follow one of their own and. That was kind of what Stannis had. He's like, yeah, I know they want to follow one of their own. That's why I, I want them to follow you. So yeah. you will, f- and you follow me. But uh, obviously, that's not going to happen. So yeah, it's the same thing. Mean, you almost get the sense that Stannis had a little respect for this this young Lyanna Mormont for the same reason. Like, well, she's sticking to her guns too. Well, ah, damn it, that's not what I wanted. But <laughs> respect. <laughs> so I'll respect you as I chop yeah. off your fingers mm-hmm. and burn you alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So okay, so let's move on to the final scene or the final location, or really, it's two sub sub locations here. We'll start with the much smaller, brief scene of Tyrion and Varys in a box on their way to Volantis, uh, on their way to Marine via Volantis, and we, there's been some curiosity as to why they're going to Volantis, although Varys pretty much just says, "Hey, that's we're going to Volantis because that's where the road to Marine starts." Uh, so. Some there's there's some people guessing maybe this thing's going to happen in Volantis and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt it. There's some trailers that sh- we from the trailers we see that there's some action in Volantis. It's not clear what, but we're going to see Volantis, and that's exciting because Volantis could be another one of these really incredible looking foreign locations. I'm really hoping for that. We'll have to wait and see. Hopefully that'll be next episode. Uh, more to the point though, Tyrion's still very depressed, still drinking. He doesn't. He he's despondent. He's despairing. He's he's a man of his word also. <laughs> <laughs> that's true and Varus is you know Varus you can see Varus is a little testy he's at first Varus was like you know like 
open and saying like like positive and like look what we can do we can you know you, you know men of men of you know men of talent and he uses that line again and men of you're a man of talent but he's he's you can see he's losing patience with Tyrion a little bit because Tyrion is just like you can imagine they've been in this box together for a while just slowly going down the road and Tyrion is just like every he's negative about everything he's like up. Oh. There's a, there's a bug in my drink, you know, <laughs> and there's, you know, like, ah, it's all worthless. Everything sucks. You know, and Varys is, you can tell he's getting a little exasperated, but he's still, he's still just working on Tyrion saying, hey, you know, get it together. You know, there's things we can do, you know, it's not over yet. And you wonder, is it going to work? Is, is he going to get Tyrion back? you know, back on the right track, or it's hard to say. It's a very short scene, and it's a, just a brief reminder of Tyrion's journey and Varys' journey. And did you, what did you get out of that scene? And beyond Tyrion being just just continuously just despairing and, and a sad yeah. sack. <laughs> I, uh, I don't want to say it was a waste or that I didn't like it, but I felt like about this scene like you felt about one of the earlier scenes where I almost, in my mind, I was sort of deciding that there must have been like this struggle in the books in Tyrion's mind to pull himself together that they're trying to reflect in the show that's kind of what I'm assuming this scene is trying I won't to give away too much but you're not yeah. you're not far off or you might you might be right on certainly as always internal con- struggles are a bit easier to do in the written and, word with the yeah. written word uh, in a lot of ways it's it is hard to show how his struggles and exactly what is getting him how sad is he about Shay how sad is he about his father how sad is he about jamie how sad is he about losing his home it's just it's just so many different things you, you it's hard to you're not in his we're not in his head it's a tv yeah. show and i think this interaction with Varys is such that we don't have to get uh, contrived exposition you know what i mean like Varys can like make a statement ask a question and Tyrion can be grumpy about it and we get the idea of what's going on um because it didn't it it didn't seem to be particularly it didn't seem to progress the plot or be particularly revealing of the characters yeah uh more continuation of which like i said i just assumed there must have been a big part of the book of Tyrion struggling with you know having killed his dad and his lover and yeah being exiled and so on and so some on. of it's so, kind of a rehash yeah, yeah. it's a more of a reminder <clears throat> it's like oh don't forget about Tyrion, and yeah you use some of the but there is one thing i liked about it a lot that was a bit revealing and it's the talk about how virus just gets really blunt with how the world works. And he says, look, someone like you and me, they're never, we're never going to be their leader. We're never going to be the open, we're never going to be leaders because they hate us. They find us repulsive. You know, he's basically saying, look, I'm a eunuch. You're a dwarf. The world, that's just the way the world is. The world hates us. That's it. But we're still valuable. We're still useful. And we can still carry a lot of weight. And we can still make things good. We can still do things. And that's what he's just trying to remind Tyrion. He's like, look, this is who you are. Yeah, you're you're a dwarf. You know, you're a Lannister. That's you know that's that's been kicked out of your family, sort of. But it's not over, man. It's not over. And this is what we're doing. And and there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's light outside of this box. <laughs> <laughs> and just hold on, man. That's kind of what he's saying. He's like, just just put it in perspective. Get over yourself. So I did like that bit. The whole kind of Varus kind of setting it straight. You know, saying, look, this is how the world works. It's 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 the same kind of speech Tyrion gave to John, you know. Look, you're a bastard. Be a bastard. Own it. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a very. I wonder. You wonder if Tyrion is any part of Tyrion is thinking back to that. You know, saying, "Hey, you know, well, yeah, well, this is how it is. I just kind of, you know, to deal with it. I can either roll over and die, or I can, you know, fight on. So it'll be interesting to see if Tyrion can pick himself up, or what if he, assuming he does, what it is that 
you know, maybe there's some sort of event or some sort of realization or some sort of turning point, and we'll see how they. What will that. drive him? You know, even if Varus does convince him, you you are a man of talent. There is a reason to go on. You still have potential. What is the reason? Is Tyrion driven to find the right leader for Westeros? Is that like <laughs> the thing? Uh, maybe, maybe. I don't know, but uh, it, it right now he seems more concerned. I, it, I would say I was gonna say right now he seems more concerned with drinking, and I was, I started to think. Uh, early in the show, early in our uh, introduction to Tyrion, he didn't really even then seem that concerned with like the right leader for Westeros. On some level, he understood like his role as a Lannister, but he just wanted to get laid and get drunk. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, and I can imagine maybe, especially if Varys is funding him, yeah, I'll just go back to that. I guess I won't kill myself, but I just want to get laid and get drunk. I don't care who the king is, you know. But it's I, I wonder what it'll take to make him care. Who the, maybe Danny will inspire him. Maybe a dragon will inspire him, or uh, could be m- cause him to want to be on the side of the dragon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so unless there's anything else on Tyrion, let's get into the meat of the Essos plot right now. That is, of course, Danny. And this very interesting developing situation in Marine, where Danny is continuously continuing to struggle with questions of leadership and of managing the population, both the conquered populace and the populace that she's set free. We start off with Dario and Grey Worm kind of hunting down Sons of the Harpy, and Dario gives a good speech, good talk about how the Unsullied are bad police. He's like, look, you guys are soldiers, you're great at fighting, your, your discipline is phenomenal, you know, you're standing in a line like you do. There's You don't have any equal. Some of these things are just implied. He doesn't outright say some of these things. But he's like, look, you guys are, everybody knows who you are. You stand out like a sore thumb. If you're going to try to do undercover work, you're trying to get down into the slums and figure out what's happening, you're, you're just not suited for this kind of work at all. And then that point is driven home by they go in, and Graham's like, oh, nothing here. And Dario's like, you have forgotten how to, you've forgotten how fear works, you know, and it's a, I love that scene. It's really good, really well done. It was a little bit, it was a little bit cheesy, but I thought the message, underlying message was excellent, and it really shows the point that Dario was trying to make. It was really well made. He said, look, you got to have the right tool for the job. You guys are really good at what you do, but this is not what you're good at. And this is what you need my people for. And he's like, this is why my people are important. And I'll show you. And he immediately just, like, stabs the wall. And <laughs> they capture the guy. And they discover the mask. He's just obviously a member of that group. And then he doesn't even he doesn't even argue. You know, I am, you know, this is, you know, she should be dead or whatever. And so then this is where we get to the, the, the dilemma. This is where it gets interesting, I thought. Uh, we have Dario giving that speech on fear, by the way, was what I was referring to with Arya. And Arya's not feeling much fear in the face of these urchins and i wonder if there's a little i was wondering if there's a parallel there if that was unintentional but now we have masador again the slave leader uh in essence here and this is something that we talked about a lot last episode was how a lot of these characters they just want to break down these obstacles they want to bash the obstacles and they want to just they don't want to handle the situation they just want to smash it they just want to break down the barriers and like a you know kind of like a child might and but we're seeing that sometimes that is the right thing to do even though i i said that it was the wrong thing to do sometimes this is one of those times where it gets really difficult because it's arguably is the correct thing to do in this in this case but maybe not it's really it's a quite a conundrum mazadar points out all they understand is blood and he was talking about the masters but on some level, he's talking about the freed slaves, too. 
these slaves have never lived in, for the most, most of these slaves were taken as children or were born into slavery. They've never experienced true justice. They don't know what, you know, Westerosi justice is like. They don't know trial. The idea of a trial is, is foreign to them, too. He says that the trials, next, trials and justice, that means nothing to the slave masters. It doesn't mean a lot to the slaves, either. Not because they don't understand justice, because it's, they've never lived it. It's never been a part of their life. It may sound cool to them, but they don't really know the ins and outs of it. And that is part of what burns Danny here. Uh, if you think about it, it's relatively new, even like in the real world. It's only in the past couple of centuries of human history, the ideas of a judicial system, you know, a right to a trial and a peer of juries and, wait, a peer of juries? A jury of peers. You know, um, innocent till proven guilty and so on. You know, these are uh, relatively new concepts for society. And um, this society is much less evolved than ours. And even the, the, the leaders of the society who have these concepts doesn't mean all the people that they're leading have the concepts. Um, uh, and I, I, maybe on a certain level, people like understand it or would understand it or would believe in it, but it doesn't mean everyone as a society automatically accepts it. And especially when it's, it's a lot easier to accept it when it's you that's in <laughs> trouble or your friend or your ally. But it, when it's your enemy trying to extend to them justice, uh, is a little more difficult. Um, yeah, but, the, uh, the slaves are more used to basically aut- autocracy. Um, not, not autocracy, but just you know oligarchy, ruled by the powerful, and the powerful are the slave masters. It's all it's kind of oligarchy, kind of a plutocracy, whatever. Uh, ruled by the few over the many, and the, the the few are way, way, way more powerful than the many in in this case. Although that's less so with Danny's interference, but it's still basically the reality, even after the conquest. And they understand it as, look, you're in charge now. Finally, someone is in charge who has our interest at heart. They don't see this. And Masador really puts it in perspective. He doesn't understand this this concept of the law being above her. She wants to live by it. She says, this is the law and we're going to live by it. And Masador does not get it. He's like, no. You're the law. You decide what's right and what's wrong. And he thought he was doing her a favor. He thought he was like, I know you didn't want to get your hands dirty. I know you didn't want to have to do this because you're like, so I did your dirty work for you. And he's legitimately confused at her reaction. But also her reaction, this is something that I thought was really interesting, and I only caught it on my rewatch. At no point in this episode, except maybe when she's reaching out to touch Drogon, and only for a second, even in that scene, does she look comfortable. At no point. She's uncomfortable from the moment she gets the news. When she's talking to Masador, she's got this kind of like deer-in-the-headlights look. She does not know what to do. She's, she's not sure how to balance the law with j- true justice and with making things work right. And Barristan argues with her to say, look, you got to do the trial, you got to do the justice. And he convinces her by kind of by touching on her responsibilities. The thing we, touched, we talked about the first episode about how Speaking to Danny's responsibilities is a good way to motivate her and say, look, you have this duty. And he points out that, look, this is what your father was. Your father was a bad guy. And to her credit, she listens. You know, at first she's like, that's what my enemy said. What did you think of that? That, that was a really interesting reveal that Barristan, you know, like gets her to pretty much convinces her. Yeah, right it now. was another example, by the way, of someone waiting until they're in private to tell her the thing that, you know, she, she, she doesn't necessarily want to hear. Yeah. Uh, he was smart enough to wait till the meeting was over. Like, hey, can I talk to you for a second, you know? Um, and uh, and I, I appreciated that one. I, I'm trying to say this correctly because I feel like a lot of times you, 
you point out that she doesn't have great advisors, and I always feel like she, she has pretty good advisors, man. <laughs> uh, not that they couldn't be better, not that she didn't wouldn't need Tyrion Navarus, but I, I feel like she's got a decent staff there. Um, there's some holes in it. Like some of them are really good at what they do, but there's some, yeah. none of them are are really great with politics. Except that, uh, um, but maybe not really great, but not really terrible either. Yeah, not really terrible. And also, they have bigger political challenges than even Varus or Tyrion, I think. I don't have to think about it for a second, but who has a bigger challenge, you know, <laughs> Danny and Barristan versus, you know, Tyrion, when he when he was hand at King's Landing. He had yeah. some pretty big challenges too, I suppose. But um, anyway, uh, I think it's an, I think that it was kind of an interesting dilemma, kind of like the, the a lot of like bold, sweeping statements were made that, like, are very quotable and make a lot of sense, you know, freedom and justice. You can't have one without the other. But in a certain level, they impede on each other, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, a Woody, I need someone to define freedom here, because am I free <laughs> to kill anyone I want? No? Okay, why not? Because that wouldn't be just, okay, so there's a limit on freedom? What's the limit when it starts to impede on someone's justice? So, uh, also, I... You know, this maybe is a little, some abstract thought here, but I think justice and freedom are very connected, and on some level, they're almost defined by a society. Mm. Like, uh, I've used this example many times, talking about freedom of speech. If you have a neighborhood of families with children that have to get up and go to work and school in the morning, I don't think you're free to walk down the street with a bullhorn yelling, motherfucker, motherfucker. You know I mean? <laughs> but if you're in a dorm with a bunch of college kids, sure, yeah, go no through the, the hallway at three in the morning yelling, motherfucker, no one's going to case it. <laughs> There's a difference in values and standards in different societies, you know? And at that moment when she's, like, trying to tell everyone, all right, this guy, he did something wrong. And, and I, I know it was, like, to a good end, but it was still wrong, and this is how justice works. First of all, she didn't even explain it that well. <laughs> Not that I explained it very well no, just now, she but she didn't get much explanation at all. And the response is, what? Boo, hiss, no. And she's like, again, she did seem uncertain about it all. You even when I mean? she gave the order to execute yeah. she was like, she but, just gave the barest of nods. She I, really didn't want to do it, but yeah. she really felt like but she But I felt to. like that was this society, this community saying... No, that's not justice. That we don't have that value. We don't see it that way. Yeah, and they, they, they almost—they almost see themselves at war still. And it's like, yeah, this, he was an enemy combatant. And and I almost think that, uh, it, especially in the same way that um, Barrison had just convinced her that you needed to give that guy a trial. Well, you needed what was his name? Mosador. 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 Mosador needs a trial too. Now, on a certain level. Maybe he admitted, yeah, I killed him. So we don't need a trial to figure out who go. But you, maybe you need a trial to determine the sentence. Maybe you need a trial to let the public understand what's going on. What you had was a public beheading with no real explanation, with much less everyone crying mercy, right? The yes, whole crowd, you know, so. and it was so it was really moving. The, the execution happens, and it's just that silence. And then there's the hissing, and Danny's just like, she was already kind of had that deer in the headlights look before that, and then she just, her eyes got even bigger, and she's just really confused, and she's just like, did I do the right thing? I don't know, maybe this is the right thing, they're upset, but maybe I still did the right thing, she doesn't know, and and this is, a, this is something that, by the way, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that it, we really encourage you all to send us suggestions and thoughts and maybe things that we didn't catch. Uh, listener Azad of Comics of Ice and Fire, of had sent us a great suggestion showing us that the parallel here 
the parallel with Masador and Danny is very similar to the parallel with Rob Stark and Rickard Karstark, where Rickard Karstark kills prisoners and is executed for it, and it causes all kinds of problems because now all the Karstark men aren't loyal, and Rob really needed those men because he was already outnumbered. And here we have Danny. It's not exactly the same thing, but we have a, a trusted, loyal man who is considered somewhat heroic by the, the rest of Danny's team. He was a leader of the slave revolt. His father died in the slave revolt. And he was one of the, as he points out himself, he was one of the first people to take up arms when Grey Worm, you know, gave them their chance. And so he's a hero to these people. She just executed a hero. It's real, yeah, it's just really bad. Yeah. It's really gonna, you know, and they start rioting. It's like, they're not just like booing. They start throwing rocks and, and some of the slaves start fighting some of the, some of the masters who were there. You can see there's like murder and trampling and, and hurling of, of, objects and the, the unsullied are having to like lock shields and the protector from rocks and it's a really ugly scene that reminded me a bit of the riot at king's landing as well but so there's a lot of parallels in that scene but i think the rickard Karstark parallel yeah, yeah. is really really on top of it. that's really perfect i feel like uh it's a neat parallel to just some points i would make uh that are a couple little differences is that Karstark killed like innocent boys yeah you know where yeah. this guy was killing a murderer yeah uh much worse. On the flip side, mm-hmm. though, Rob, I had, you know, Rob is sort of like on his platform of honor, where, not that Danny doesn't have honor, but she's not necessarily on a platform of honor, you know, so uh, I, I, I think Rob made less of a mistake than Danny. I think Rob was making a tough call, but the correct call, whereas Danny, I think, was making a tough call, but the incorrect call. Yeah, because Masador is also... His motivation was far different. Right. Even if, you right. know, and, and I believe him. I believe what their motivations were, what their stated motivations were. Rickard Karshak was just out for revenge. Yeah. That's it. He also murdered guards. The guards that to he murdered were, yeah. were, you know, were loyal. So he also killed yeah. completely innocent um, men of River Run. So that was yet worse, whereas Masador didn't do that. And Masador thought he was doing something for Danny, whereas Rickard was doing it for himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it also was even a bigger problem because, as Rob pointed out at the time, it was his own honor that was affected by what Ricard did. His own honor as a Stark. It's like, these were prisoners were in my care. You messed with my honor. My word now counts for less because these prisoners were murdered in my care. That doesn't really come into play here with Danny. That's, yeah. Her honor isn't in question. This is just some low-life, low-level operative of the Sons of the Harpy that isn't particularly well-connected. That is even brought up that he was bribed basically to do these things. He's not, like, part of the nobility. You know, he was just some And guy. also, Danny is actively hunting them down. Yeah. You know, she didn't, like, vow to protect them. She just now decided that maybe they should get a trial. You know? Yeah, yeah, so, that was kind of... Cause, because of Barrison kind of pushed her to that, and she did yeah. it. But she didn't know how. She didn't know how yeah. to run a trial. Like you said, she didn't even give Masador a trial. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty big mistake. And it's really drives home the point that we've been talking about since the beginning, uh, since the beginning, all since last episode of (laughs) how badly she needs some additional advisement and people, someone like Tyrion or Varys, you got to think that someone like Tyrion or Varys could have handled this better, at least could have offered her the better advice. Whether or not she takes it is, is up in the air, but the advice would have been given and we would at least be able to see, yeah. That would have been smarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should have listened to Varys or Tyrion or whatever, whoever is going to be giving the advice, uh, presumably. And yeah, so it's just, it's really setting up 
that need even more. We already saw how badly she needs it, and now we're seeing it even more because she's just that was no. There's no way to put it other than this was a blunder. She messed up. Yeah, it's it's somewhat understandable, and, and you know that she again she's trying to do the right thing, but she's 15 ish. I don't remember exactly how old she is. I get, I get the ages mixed up because book and show. There's this, you know. If she was tracker. 25, I wouldn't. It's not like when I was 25, had it all figured out, knew exactly <laughs> how to execute trials and present statements to the public. And well, I conquered several cities when I was 17, <laughs> and when I was ruling over these conquered populations, you know, no. <laughs> you made a lot of blunders too. Yeah, that's so. true. I, that's, that's right. That's why I'm here now. I'm pod. I'm a podcaster instead of ruling over these cities I conquered. Yeah. <laughs> so. I think that'll be really interesting to see how Danny's challenges are faced for it. One thing I, I just dread the there's there's a, an ele, there's a, a streak, or an element of the fandom that just is waiting for Danny to make mistakes, and they just love bashing her because there's, there's a lot of you, you might be surprised how many people hate Danny, and this is just going to be more fuel for their fire. I almost <laughs> like don't want to hear it because <laughs> I know she messed up. We know she messed up here. This was she made some mistakes here, but. At the end of the episode, we're reminded that no matter how much she messes up, there's still this other element that might just help her overcome whatever, or it could just make things a lot worse. Help her mess up even more. Or help her, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that is this all-powerful nuclear option of the dragons. She, As she sends everybody away, she hears a sound, walks out on her balcony, Drogon is there, and they have their moment. It's the only time in the whole episode where she looks remotely comfortable even for a moment and she's not comfortable but for a moment as she's yeah, like yeah. as she started to realize she gets over her fear a little at first she's really afraid but also curious and interested and happy it's a very mix of emotions and then she smiles she gets this really genuine like motherly smile and then he flies off and again we see the fantastic marine the view of marine it's like the show opens and closes with a fantastic vista we see the titan and we see marine at night and it's kind of cool. As far as an episode, it was a really well-contained thing. Yeah, I like that uh, that moment there with her and the dragon was pretty good, too, because it, she did go through this range of emotions. And uh, uh, I, I liked it a couple things. One, you still can't quite tell. She still can't quite tell if she's in control of this dragon. Uh, and I felt like she had to be pretty bold to even make the attempt to to reach up towards it. <laughs> yeah, you know she was what I mean? afraid. It's like, so easy. Like, <laughs> snapped her whole arm off or just corrupted her in fire and uh, yeah. add to that. Um, Knocked her right off the balcony. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I. <clears throat> but he wanted to get close to her. Yeah, he, he was definitely curious, checking her out. She was checking him out too. But as she kind of reached forward, her, maybe she gained a little confidence, a little smile flashed across her face. She reaches up, but never quite touches you he can't like, quite see it's almost you can't tell he, I, I wasn't quite he, sure if he, he touched her or not i i looked pretty close the second time and i'm pretty sure so? she okay. didn't quite touch he swooped over what, i thought that which, might just be because that's that's just cgi like it wouldn't look i, I you know i think you're probably yeah, right i wanted to give them credit to i wanted to think of it as a, a symbolic meaning that the connection isn't quite made that it's close but not quite there uh but maybe it's just a, a technology te- technological challenge you know but uh Maybe it's both. <laughs> well done, regardless. Yeah. So, and, it, and it's, there's also, I also want to draw attention to another parallel here. Her first meeting with Drogon in a while went like that. Her first meeting with the dragon she put in the catacombs went a lot differently. That's true. Those yeah, dragons yeah. are pissed. Drogon yeah. is like, hey, I have my freedom. You know, I'm coming back to see you. Hey, mom. You know, 
I gotta go. <laughs> but the other dragons were like, Rah! you know, why did you lock us up in here? You know, yeah. this is this is terrible. And she's still sad. And they play that same music where it's that same music. They play it the same oh, yeah. sad music, but it, just like the Reigns of Casimir, they played a different version of it. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, I'm very in tune with that with that whole story. In tune, ah, pun or pun. I intended that. Yeah, I intended that. Pun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'll take credit for that. I always take credit for bad puns, even when they're not mine. Uh, but that one was mine, so there. Uh, so, yeah, so I thought that was an interesting parallel. The, the, those dragons were, like, about to burn her, you know? And maybe that, that might have been part of why she was so afraid of Drogon, on top of the fact that it's this huge, dangerous beast, you know? There's that, too. So there's a lot of reasons to be reasons for her to be scared, but I think the reaction of the other dragons maybe, uh, you know, adds a little color to the whole thing. So, yeah, so, you know, and we know from, from history, Targaryen history, that no one, there's never been someone that's, you know, bonded or ridden multiple dragons. So something's got to happen with those other two dragons. Drogon seems to be the one that's attuned to her. It's the biggest dragon. It makes sense yeah. that she would claim that one. You know, he's the, 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 other the one two that dragons, has the Targaryen colors, black and red, you know. I think it's pretty pretty obvious the other two dragons are going to be for Tyrion and Janice Slint. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget about young Ollie at the wall. I think he's a, oh, yeah. he's got dragon rider written all over him, doesn't he? <laughs> Could fire arrows from dragon back, you know, taking out wildlings all over the place. Mm. Whoa, earthquake! <laughs> so, let's see. Do we have anything else? I think uh, that was a good way to end the episode. With Drogon flying off, it, it, it ended the episode kind of the way it started. Like I said, with uh, with a beautiful scene, and it left us wondering. And we can only wonder what's going to happen next. We still got. We still haven't seen the Boltons yet. Um, what else haven't we seen yet? The preview, by the way, did for next week. We did see we saw Ramsey, mm-hmm. Roos, and Theon. We saw a little flashes yes, of all true. of them. We did. Um, and another thing I was reminded of in the previews for this episode was Gregor, the Mountain who rides. He's still like a, in the a looming character. Yeah, he's still you know? in the Kyber's workshop, yeah, his laboratory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Will he become some sort of Frankenstein? Un- yeah. The Kyborg, we call him. With a dwarf head. <laughs> With a dwarf's head, yes. <laughs> Maybe a dwarf it's Very body. possible, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do it the other way. The mountain's head on a dwarf's body. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> so, let's see. I guess that is it for today's episode, unless you have anything else you wanted to add. Uh, I wanted to ask the viewers if they even noticed my awesome shirts. <laughs> <laughs> that actually, that's a good point. We 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 did a little bit of changing throughout the history of the show. We we don't tend to make large changes at once. We tend to make incremental changes. We make lots of them. Uh, people who have been following the show for a long time know that we've gotten a lot better at some things over time. Maybe not better at some other things. Maybe we've gotten worse at some things. I don't know. This is, you know, that's up to you guys to let us know. Sometimes we catch these things on our own, but you listeners uh, and viewers are. Uh, the best source we have for feedback and for constructive criticism. So we welcome as much of that as you are willing to give. And we look forward to covering the rest of the season with everybody. I normally go through our credits here and thank all our regular Patreon supporters, but we had a loss of internet just before we sat down to record. And I couldn't get that data because I keep that on our Google Drive. So I, I, you know, I could, I could remember some people. But rather than just reading all, trying to do half of the names from memory, we'll just say thanks to all our Patreon supporters at all levels. And thanks to everybody who supports the show in other ways, either through PayPal or through shopping on our site, historyofwestros.com. There's lots of ways to support the, sh- uh, the show financially. But, of course, the best one of the best ways to help is through word of mouth. There are 71, thanks to Iontrone on Twitter, follow at Iontrone for the best information on all the different podcasts out there. He 
told us and told the Twitterverse that there are 71 podcast episodes that covered the first episode of Game of Thrones. Some of these are wow. Game of Thrones only podcasts. Some of them are podcasts that cover a variety of topics that happen to be also covering Game of Thrones during the season. So when I say you have a lot of choices as to where you get your Game of Thrones analysis, I really mean it. There are a lot of choices, so thank you very much for choosing History of Westeros. I know some of you listen to multiple podcasts, so but still, there's no way anyone, even Iron Throne, listens to all of them. That's just that's more than a full time job. I mean, imagine even if they were only an hour each. That's seventy one hours of <laughs> podcast. Jeez, that is insane. By the seven, that is just too much. So, but there is plenty of quality out there, and I hope that. We are at least among those that you think are at the t- near at or near the top. We'll, and we'll keep trying to get there if we're not there. I wonder how many podcasts covered the Star Wars trailer. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that is probably in the hundreds. That's the only thing right now that's probably buzzing more than Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. And it's such a small... It goes to show how, how big a thing it is. Because Game of Thrones is huge, but Star Wars is huger. <laughs> but maybe in 30 years, we'll see. You know, of course, Star Wars will probably keep getting bigger. <laughs> yeah. But Game of Thrones will continue to get bigger, too. Like you said, they're, st- they're spending off Star Wars, doing all these other things. Just 20, 30 years from now, what other kind of Game of Thrones stories will there be? Yeah. They may just do, uh, you know, they could do his- things from history. They can do Robert's Rebellion. They could do the Blackfire Rebellions. They could do uh, just a small miniseries on just like the tournament at Hall, like young Ned Stark. You know, they could go farther back in history. Aegon's Conquest. They could flash forward too. Ooh. You know, if they maybe they go forward like wow. three or five yeah. generations. You know, I hardly even thought about that possibility. That's a cool idea. So send us your thoughts on that as well. In addition to feedback, criticism, praise, suggestions, comments. Etc. Etc. Also, send us your ideas for spinoffs. That'd be a fun thing to talk about. We, we, we can add some new segments in the show where we particularly pay attention to good listener feedback. But in order to do that, we're going to need you guys to uh, participate. You guys already do. But the more, the better. So thanks for whatever you do. And we will see you all in a week for episode three. I forget what the name of it is right now. One of the other things I couldn't quickly look up because we lost internet just before recording this episode. <laughs> but we will see you all next week. Thanks again to Sean, Valor, and Margolis, everybody.